0: Uh, I I believe only uh, office church officers are allowed to speak during the theological discussion, according to our constitution. Am I correct in that, AC members? Is that correct? Church officers, right? Okay, so if you're a pastor, elder, deacon, you can participate in the theological discussion. Otherwise, um, you're welcome to listen. Um, We have a microphone right up here. Um, and also, Sam Barber is in the back with a handheld if you're sitting toward the back like a good Baptist, um, and he will hand you the microphone uh, for that um, if you would like to speak. We we're trying to record this and have record of it, so please use the microphone. So let's, um, let's begin with prayer, and uh, then we will, uh, we will launch into our discussion. So I'll ask um, Chris Sheffield, will you pray for us to begin? Thank you. Thank you. So, so, Work Brothers, if you have any um, question that you would like to have uh, discussed uh, as it pertains to the uh, sermons we've heard and um, the doctrine of redemption uh, in general, uh, those can be raised. And if you don't mind, I will uh, begin with a question for us to maybe consider um, related to uh, Chris Sheffield's message from uh, last night. And uh, this is one that I've seen discussed a bit uh, recently in some, some of the reform blogs. And the question is, um, can we or should we refer to Christians as being totally depraved? Are Christians depraved after redemption? So that's uh, something I think is worthy of discussion in our terms of our the way we talk about that so I wanted to open that up for uh, for comment and if you have other questions to go from there and believe it or not Chris wants to make comment on that so <laughs> Does have a copy of the confession? <laughs> thank you
1: I'm not really going to comment I was just going to read this as we begin because that was a question that I had in preparing it <laughs> I was going to read from the 6th chapter of the Confession. No? Yes. In the 5th paragraph, the last paragraph of the 6th chapter of the Baptist Confession of Faith, the Confession states, This corruption, speaking of original sin and depravity, during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated and although it be through christ pardoned and mortified yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin now you could parse that perhaps and and understand that in different ways but at least for me anyway my understanding of what was being said there was that uh, original corruption sin and depravity does in a sense even though pardoned by Christ, forgiven, that, that that does remain in us. Now, to what extent and how I, that might—that's—that's that's a good area for discussion. But I did want to share that at the opening of it. So.
2: Yeah,
0: please you can grind this microphone here as well
3: Abraham's lying Lot's incest Moses's unbelief and anger David's adultery and murder Peter's denial and um, Murray Brett's pride and impatience.
4: I would think when we think about the doctrine of uh, total depravity, when we look at it synonymously with total inability, we're certainly talking about the corruption of man's faculties and so um, from the perspective of that corruption uh, though the bible doesn't use the term will uh, to speak of a faculty it certainly speaks of man's heart, mind and understanding so that we're dead, darkened, ignorant serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, disobedient, deceived all of those uh, things that um, the spirit of God in regeneration renews. We're saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the spirit of God. And so I would say, one, though, though we certainly um, continue to have um, uh, the effects of remaining sin and corruption, uh, as if we are carrying around the corpse of, uh, of our old man, to say that we're totally depraved, um, would seem at least to indicate that we're saying that we're totally uh, unable in our faculties but regeneration's renewed our faculties, it's made us alive unto God. So in that sense I I wouldn't say that man was totally uh, depraved after he's been regenerated if we understand it as total inability.
5: Um, I don't know You, you men can help me or correct me here but the paragraph that you read, it says, this corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those. Makes me think about Paul's words of, that give us an identity with remaining flesh. There's a difference between being totally depraved and battling that which is remaining. So the regenerate has been changed and made new in Christ, yet he battles that which is remaining in the flesh. I I don't know if that...
3: The term the flesh is something we kick around a lot and I think it would be helpful to define it pastorally and practically Anybody else want to take a stab?
5: I like stabbing. Um, No, um, I think it's a really good question because, as a matter of fact, I just got off the phone with an elder at another church this week, and he was having a discussion with a family that's coming from another background, and they're trying to work through, quite frankly, issues of perfectionism. And they've been debating in their home this issue of what is the flesh. And he and I were having this discussion, and... It's a really hard question, and I wondered sometimes if people get mixed up with the idea that flesh is something just physical. And when I see Paul's language of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the idea of what is remaining in us is the remaining uh, bits of that corruption of our nature which were given or... uh, imputed to us by the first Adam, and it's not just a physical sense, but it's something that is still corrupt in us, but it is not as though we are left in that corruption in its holistic sense. So any of those sins and the sinfulness of the nature which Paul describes in the New Testament, to me, would, would be an identity of some of those things that are Remaining flesh. And that may be incorrect, but that's how I think through it in some ways.
4: Yeah, I think, um, too, along the lines of uh, what is the flesh, is even asking the question whether or not the believer has two natures, uh, wh- wh- whether we have that renewed nature and whether we have a sinful nature at the same time. Um, because that's, uh, that's very, very popular today, especially in a lot of the, the deeper life, higher life type thing, is the the natures are described as these two competing dogs and whichever one we feed the most is the one that ends up winning. And, you know, the issue is does the, does the Bible describe man that way or does it describe us as having a new nature and we're to reckon ourselves to be that which we actually are, and so which is, which is alive unto God, dead to sin, And reckoning ourselves that way because that's really what we are. So I think about when we think of the flesh, uh, part of that, at least part of the discussion, has to be whether or not when the Bible speaks of the flesh in relation to the believer, is that really saying that he has a sinful nature along with the nature that's been made alive unto God? And I just don't believe we see that in the scripture. So,
6: Could I direct a different question? Okay. Um, and, Brian, by the way, that illustration about the two dogs just proves our theology has gone to the dogs. So, um, now, I would. Do what? I'm not suggesting we're done with the question, but I did want to posit another one, if I could, uh, just in the mix. Speaking of definite atonement, the uh, Synod of Dort, the Canons of Dort, in speaking of a particular redemption, also speak of the sufficiency of Christ's death. And I'd just like to pause that question. What do we mean by the sufficiency of Christ's death, and how does that apply in evangelism as we share the gospel, because we don't say, repent and believe because Jesus died for you, but do we speak of the sufficiency of Christ's death when we speak to people? Um, it's true that Andrew Fuller emphasized heavily the doctrine of the sufficiency of the atonement and probably went too far. In his saying, in some sense, he died for the that Christ died for the non elect. But just that basic question of how do we wrestle with a, this, what seems to me a, a scriptural tension uh, that's there. Um, define the doctrine of the sufficiency of Christ's death
0: just as a clarifying point perhaps the way I'm hearing Jerry um, sometimes we'll hear people speak of Christ's death being sufficient for the atonement of all mankind uh, but not applied to all mankind? Is that? Yeah. So is, that, is it proper to speak of the atonement of Christ in those ways? That the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover the sins of all of mankind uh, in relationship to our understanding of his atonement being limited to the elect?
1: I, I would agree with that, that phrasing. Uh, and I believe that's reflected in the, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be, but I believe the canons of Dort do frame it in that way. Um, not that that's authoritative, but just, just, uh, just as a point of reference. Um, yeah, I would say it, it is right to say that Christ's blood is sufficient to atone uh, for all of humanity. It is only intended. It will only it will only and is only intended for the elect. Uh, I think it's a question. So we're not saying that there was an intention of saving all of humanity or that that was what the scope of the redemption was. It's just a question of could the blood of Christ have atoned for all of the human race if God had have attended, intended it to? The answer is yes, of course. Did he? No. And so, yeah. At another point, though, it and back to Jerry, I think it's kind of Jerry's intention in talking about in-evangelism. In On a practical level, um, I think we need to be careful about using that or, or I don't know, I, f- I feel like a lot of times Calvinists are always, I think we're always kind of uncomfortable in our own skins, especially in the areas of evangelism. And so we're trying to find ways to sound as... <laughs> Less Calvinistic when we're talking about the scope of the atonement, and so if it was being used in a way almost disingenuously to, you know, to say, well, we're, I don't want to sound Calvinistic here, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that that would be the best, the best use of it, because then you may be inadvertently conveying the wrong idea. And on the other hand, however, uh, um, we should not be uncomfortable with the language of scripture. And when it comes to evangelism, uh, and I think all of you men would agree with me, the language of the apostles is always your safest bet. We look at them and in the, in, in the way that they, the the imperatives of their preaching, uh, you know, repent and believe the gospel. Uh, that being our Lord Jesus and 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 their calls to repentance as well. So um, I, I don't know that we need to get so hung up. I know a lot of Arminians say that well, if you can't walk up to anybody on the street and say that Jesus died for you, then you have no, you have no mandate for evangelism, and that's just silly. Um, because the apostles don't do that at any point in the book of Acts. Christ, uh, it's just not there in Scripture. So it's, it's, it's a red herring, I think. So.
4: Just quickly, when we we read Dort, and Dort uses the word sufficiency, it it doesn't say specifically sufficient for all, efficient for the elect. It doesn't use that particular cliche. Rather, it uses sufficiency in speaking of the intrinsic dignity, the infinite value of the person of Christ. Um, But but I think we, we, we read a little bit too much into Dort if we interpret it from the moderate Calvinist uh, perspective of uh, of sufficiency in in the actual atonement uh, rather than looking at the, the dignity and the infinite nature of Christ that to use spurgeon 's word, if God intended he could have saved ten thousand thousand worlds that christ christ 's atonement isn 't mathematical it 's not that he had to suffer ten more minutes to save a thousand more people or shed another pint of blood in order to so, so in looking at the infinite nature of Christ, certainly there is sufficiency. Um, one of the things I found fascinating, quickly, about Denault's book is when, when you go to the website, um, Calvin's Calvinism, for example, and you read hundreds, if not thousands, of quotes from the reformers who are all moderate Calvinists, um, who will teach a sufficient, efficient view of the atonement, um, Everybody from burkhoff to Hodge to the greatest minds that we, we know in our Reformed history, the overwhelming majority, 98%, are all pedo And Denault brings out um, the reason, theologically, why our Presbyterian brothers must hold to an efficient, uh, a sufficient, efficient view is because they believe that in some sense their children are members of the new covenant. And as such... Christ must be a mediator to them in some sense. So Christ's atonement and his mediatorial role must be sufficient in some sense and therefore be sufficient for the non-elect. So that's, that's, that's a, a background, I think, that, that helps us understand why men like Gill, as a Baptist who believes in a limited understanding of the New Covenant, can be what we consider a high Calvinist because he's simply being consistent saying no, he he is only the mediator for the elect, he only died for the elect and there was only intentionality for the elect and so uh, it it just helps clarify I think a little bit the covenants and if you don't have the book it's on uh, it's on page 93, but it's a great little tidbit
5: Um. Brian, you may can answer this from Deneau's book as well, but I heard a couple of conversations, a couple of men were talking about how do we view the atonement in the sense of individual versus corporate. Um, And it seems from a Baptist perspective, we would have a view of understanding, historically anyway, that the salvation of individuals is a very important concept in the atonement. Um, There's a corporate nature to it, but individuals are a very important side of that issue. And I wondered if we could have some discussion about that, because I know there's been a couple other men that have talked about that when we talk about the sufficiency of the atonement. I I think, I don't know if they're here, I heard a couple men talking about that. Maybe we can discuss this a little more. That's a really good point. Brothers take more of a corporate view and include their families in that than to say, to really look at the individualistic side. But you've got a little more background on that than I do, so that's yeah. why I'm kind of asking that to
4: you in a way. Yeah. Um, okay. When when you speak of corporate election, you know, you're thinking of uh, Robert Shank, you know, like like cho- chosen in him, the, the book, or... Uh, elect in the sun and, and that type of thing, um, that's going to be a different view of corporate election where a Presbyterian, when they talk about sufficiency and efficiency, they, they are not just speaking really of efficiency for the non-elect in general, but more so the efficiency of the non-elect who are members of the new covenant. <laughs> so so there, there, there is a, a limiting sense of, uh, of, of that sufficiency. I think uh, theologically there's a whole lot of men in here who, who can speak to the nature of the atonement better than I can. Um, but um, absolutely there is a, a corporate nature to the doctrine of um, our predestination and election, but it's not... It's not only corporate. It's not only individual. I think, I think we do see a both and. We're chosen in him, but it's not to use Charles Stanley's illustration that, uh, you know, it's whosoever will wants to get on the boat, and the boat's going to, to a destination. Uh, we, we don't see that type of view of predestination and election in the Scripture, but we, we are certainly elected or predestined to a corporate body, but we are, we are elected individually and predestined corporately to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so, um, anyway, I don't know if that answered your question. But...
2: Yeah, Peter O'Brien says both and. <laughs> there is,
1: well, there's, I mean, uh, if I understand what you're saying, and, and, and I would agree with it, there's, yes, uh, yes, he died for the church. And who is the church? There, there is no corporate comprehension of election apart from the individuals that make up that corporate body. Um, yeah.
5: I guess, too, I wanted to hear from the Presbyterian perspective since you've had. You just quoted to know the there. Experience. No, no, <laughs> but you've got, you've got a background that I don't have. I grew up Southern Baptist. I didn't have to be convinced to be a Baptist. I had to be convinced not to be a pedo Baptist when I came to Doctors of Grace. So I'm interested in some context of understanding. See, when we do the Lord's Supper, we, I say to the people, we take the bread as individuals, as Christ died for individuals. We take the cup and we hold it all together as Christ died for the church. Now, I know not everybody would agree with the symbolism or those type of things, but what I'm saying is in the atonement to our people, there's an individual nature to the decree of election, predestination, but there's also a corporate nature of the church, the Israel of God. Uh, and so... In that aspect, you were speaking about Deneau's book. How can we see the reality that the view you're talking about from Deneau is something that we as Baptists ought to take to heart that something is important about our view of the sufficiency, the tone keeps us from moving in a direction, possibly toward pato Baptist? I
4: I think the way we do that is we don't is we recognize um, that we can't separate the atonement and the mediatorial role of Christ. In, uh, in Romans chapter 8, when it talks about uh, Him dying, rising, who even makes intercession for us, the high priestly work of Christ, the mediatorial role of Christ is one. It's, 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 not, it's not spliced and diced. And so those for whom He died are those for whom He intercedes, His intercession is effectual for every one of them. And he is the mediator of the new covenant, and every single one who is in the new covenant experiences all of the graces that are promised in the new covenant. And that's not simply eschatological. That's not just future. Our Presbyterian friends are going to argue that there is an aspect in which you can splice and dice that Christ is a mediator in some sense for members of the new covenant who are unregenerate if he's a mediator for them then in some sense christ had to die for them and so you you read a lot of these pedo baptist guys and again there are hundreds if not thousands of quotes on calvin's calvinism that just when you read their understanding of some of the universal sounding passages they sound exactly like arminians they, they, they interhodge. For example, in his systematic, he sounds like an Arminian when he's talking about the sufficiency of the atonement. And I never understood why. I, I just scratched my head and said, you know, can, can you not see that intentionality on God's part limits sufficiency? But he's forced to that because he has to have some way to have unregenerate people in the new covenant. And, and say Christ is their mediator. And they, they, they freely admit that. that and, and, and it's always in some sense that isn't defined. Or you do have Presbyterians who will say that what Christ mediates for the non-elect is he mediates wrath to the non-elect in the new covenant. But then you have to ask the question, how in the world are they a member of a covenant of grace <laughs> if what's mediated to them is wrath? It just doesn't make any sense. Does that answer?
5: while is: There are universal benefits from his mediation. That is the moment that Adam fell. He stood between God and all mankind, spared them from their wrath, from God's wrath, and he secured for all mankind, all mankind uh, both their life. Reign for the just and the unjust because he's the head over all things for the church. So he mediates only to the elect, but there are universal
1: benefits from that mediation. And that flows
4: out of the atonement. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's I mean, the, the, the proof text. Sorry. You know, the, the, the proof text for common grace is he's the savior of all men, especially those that believe. And so understanding that is he is the benefactor. Of all men, he is he is the one through whom uh, those blessings flow, especially salvifically for for the elect. And so, um, certainly, uh, when when we think about um, that the the, the long suffering of the Lord is salvation, you know, God God's um, benefit to the non elect is ultimately to the ultimate benefit of his elect, in order that they might be saved. The reason that God didn't just wipe out everybody right now and simply save those that are alive or is elect is because God has a purpose of grace given to us in Christ Jesus, and we're, we're enduring all things for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's working these things out, giving rain to the, to the just and the unjust so that the unjust who has a baby that he's elected is saved. But, so all of those benefits flow out of the atonement, but ultimately they only work good... Ultimate good for the elect, because ultimately the 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 one who receives all the benefits of God, and and sits under the common grace of God, then stands condemned by those very things, and and those things that were blessings end up chains that drag them to hell. Yeah, that that goes along with what you said, Joseph. You got to get away to the
5: call. Those who are called, those who love God and are called according to their purpose. I mean, that's that's pretty specific. In the nature of the atonement, those who love God, who are called. I think I think as Baptists we need to be careful too, because Andrew Fuller fell into this. And Fuller, in his view of the atonement, went down a road where he walked away from the definite atonement. And as Baptists, we can deal with this too. And Jerry and I have had these conversations over the last few years. And if you've not done much reading on Fuller, you need to to kind of get a grasp of how you can even as a Baptist walk away from the specific sufficient nature of the atonement.
4: One of the things Chris mentioned a moment ago was um, the the moderate Calvinist argument though for sufficient for all, efficient for the elect in in that sense is that Apart from that, we have no grounds for uh, the free offer of the gospel, and so I mean that's that's their theological argument is that in, unless Christ's death was in some way sufficient for all men, then, then we then we don't have any grounding for evangelism. We don't have any grounding for the free offer, and uh, and yeah, I, I just think that's I think that's one of the, the signposts that we need to be real careful of, of biting that that argument. It, it's it's not it's not a valid argument when it comes to, to the free offer of the gospel, um, the sufficiency of atonement I, um, is not the basis of me calling all men to repent and believe. And the sufficiency of Christ, or even the infinite nature of Christ to be able to save all men, is not the grounding for me to be able to to command all men everywhere to repent. So...
0: I want to return real quick to the um, question Murray had asked. I think I'm guessing he had something more to, uh, to share. I, I want to get to the specific, to the heart of what he was asking. It was pastorally, practically, how do we work with a definition of what the flesh is? How do we work that out pastorally in our ministries, in our churches as we seek to define what is the Bible speaking of in terms of walking in the flesh, living in the flesh versus living in the spirit. Um, so I, wanna, I just wanted to return us to that because I think there's still more to be said on it.
3: In Galatians chapter 2, when Peter wavered from Christ, he walked in the flesh. He lived as a hypocrite uh, under the justice of fallen man. That's what the word hypocrite means. Verse 15 and 16 is a statement of the gospel. Verse 17 and 18, he, he... Tore down what Christ came to build and built up what Christ came to tear down. Namely, self-righteousness and self. And when we live upon self-righteousness, we put ourselves in the place of Christ. I think that's essentially and fundamentally what it is to walk in the flesh. To live as right in our own eyes. To be wise in our own eyes, to be good in our own eyes, to be capable or able in our own eyes, is—they're all components of the flesh. And when we when we live as right in our own eyes, um, we do we do great damage to Christ's church. We did what we do what Peter did. We we if we use the language of uh, five fourteen, we bite. And devour and break one another apart. Not precisely consume. The word consume is not the best translation. It's break apart. divide, Devour. Break apart. And um, I've been a whole lot more attentive to that in my own life and my family and church family. And beginning to see a few dividends.
4: Our confession of faith in chapter 13 of sanctification, um, it speaks to both um, the issues of uh, nature, uh, I think helping to define flesh, etc. It says, those who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also farther sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue, by His Word and Spirit dwelling in them." And then when we ask the question, are they totally depraved? The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. And you know, if, if we use the language of 1 John 3 when it talks about that He came to destroy the works of the devil, it doesn't mean annihilate, it means really to unplug, to, to uh, make ineffective. Um, the, the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. And they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. But then speaking of the flesh, in paragraph 2 he says, this sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abideth still some, and then I believe this is a definition of the flesh, some remembrance of corruption in every part. Whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So our confession seems to describe the flesh, define the flesh in some way as uh, the uh, remnants of corruption in every part and then in an appositional phrase calling it the lust of the flesh.
0: We have about five minutes. Any other comments or questions related to any of this or any, anything additional you'd like to add? <laughs> I, think, I think it would be helpful um, perhaps even while we're here at some point that we spend time discussing uh, the role of the Godhead in terms of the Trinitarian work of God in all of these aspects of redemption that we're discussing. Um, we always have a tendency to um, to focus all of our attention on um, the member of the Trinity and whose specific work is being um, being worked out in these elements of redemption that we are speaking of Um, and I think uh, we do that to the exemption of what's going on with the other members of the Trinity at the same time Um, so that's maybe a large, <laughs> a large undertaking and discussion, but um, I'm thinking in part of, last, uh, of, of past general assemblies where we've talked about the Trinitarian nature of God and, um, and how that works, how God as Trinity um, works in all of these things. And, uh, and I think we, we have a truncated view of God if we don't think of God in a Trinitarian sense at all times. Um, and so the, uh, the the work of the Trinity in all of the elements and aspects of redemption may be something worthy of some table talk. So, um, unfortunately, we're out of time. I like to do that. Um, <laughs> and we're going to um, break from here and go have uh, dinner. And then we'll come back in here afterwards for our evening worship and um, so let's uh, let's close out in prayer, and we'll be dismissed um, for our meal. Brandon Smith, can you pray and also pray? Uh, thank the Lord for our food tonight. Thank you.